It is good to be here today, to be gathered with our people. You guys look great. Did anyone tell you that today? You look great. Uh, you really do. Glad to see you here. I'm glad you came back. I'm thankful that, uh, that you're, anytime you look out over the people and you see people, it's a good day. And uh, so that, that does my heart well to see you. We are going to be moving right along this morning in our series in Daniel. And we're going to be camping out in Daniel chapter 4 today. So if you want to go there, uh, you can. I don't know about you, but I have had a really great time working through Daniel thus far. Um, this is the first time that I've, I've taught through the book in its entirety, and uh, it's been challenging and encouraging thus far, and I, I, uh, I hope it's been as much of a blessing for you as it has been uh, for me each week. Over the past few weeks, we've watched as the people of God have been taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar, and then through God's providence, a, a small group of four Hebrew men have been given very influential positions in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And through circumstances and those positions of influence, God has consistently been revealing himself to these four Hebrew men and to King Nebuchadnezzar, whose pride and arrogance is well documented in the ancient world. Last week we saw that the Most High God, or or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, Daniel's God, the God of the Old Testament, we saw that this God was strong enough to deliver three of these Hebrew men from Nebuchadnezzar's hand and to save them from the furnace. And yet, even though though the king was super impressed with the power of the Hebrew God, he has not yet bowed his heart and his life to worship him as God. He's he's impressed with him. He had some sort of power encounter with him. He, He thinks highly of him. He actually made a rule that you can't speak bad about him, but he does not yet worship him as God. And yet, even though, even though he does not worship him yet as God, God in his grace pursues the king. There's a story there of personal application for all of us, isn't there? That, that the story of our lives would match up well with King Nebuchadnezzar. We might not have been the leader of a, of a superpower in the ancient world, but Long before we bowed our hearts and our lives to worship Jesus for who he was, he graciously and consistently pursued us with his love and his protection, leading us to places of repentance. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, and it was his kindness that brought many of us low to a place where we were so empty in our own resources that we needed him so powerfully, and he was there to reveal his grace to us. So that... That's kind of what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar's life, too. Consistently, for these last few weeks, we've seen his pride and arrogance be confronted by the loving grace of God as he seeks to reveal himself to him. And yet, he, he still is a little bit stubborn. Today, we're going to see yet another episode where uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams are a prophetic method of revelation. God is showing himself to him in personal ways. I've titled the talk this morning, Another Day, Another Dream, because we've already had one dream that has been interpreted. In the first few verses, the the scenes is set up, it's a little different. It's, It's one of the more interesting chapters in the Bible, because it doesn't read like most of the chapters of the Bible. I think the bookends are really helpful. If you're in chapter four of Daniel, look at verse three. Here are the words of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. One of the most arrogant and proud men in the ancient world. Here is what he says in verse 3. Talking about the most high God. 
How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And he goes into the story that we'll get to today and then look at the end of that chapter in verse 34. The end of chapter four. Again, Nebuchadnezzar's words. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, the most proud and arrogant man that we find, finds himself face to face with power and majesty. Like I said, it's an interesting book because it doesn't, it's not a prophetic revelation like we'll get to later. And it's not just an account written by Daniel uh, explaining where he has been and what's been going on. This is actually a personal recollection from Nebuchadnezzar. A letter penned by himself to recount this dramatic encounter that he had with God. We are likely close to 30 years removed from the previous chapter. Just think about that for a moment. 30 years from the close of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4. There's a lot of living then that has not been recorded for us. And sometimes we skip over these verses and we, we fail to realize that generations come and go between these verses. And we'll see people live for 70, 80 years and then they die and the next guy lives for 120 years and then he dies. And that's generations of history and life and experience that, that we are not precisely told about. And it's a good reminder to us that the Bible's use, usefulness is not only limited to its historical information, although it's accurate and trustworthy, but that is not its main function. The Bible's function, its purpose, is to reveal God to us. And God is selective in the stories that he recounts to us. They serve his purposes. And he reveals himself most clearly in those that he chose to include. Nebuchadnezzar writes a a universal letter to all the provinces under his kingdom's rule. To all peoples, nations, and language that dwell in all the earth. This would be the equivalent of a a special address to the nations by our president or or maybe, given the times that we live in, maybe an emotionally charged, slightly inappropriate Twitter rant to the nations, right? This would be a way to get the, yeah, I did. Uh, This would be a way to get the information out to a large group of people instantaneously, right? Pushing it out to all the people under his rule and under his reign. The whole encounter is, 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 the purpose of it is spelled out right here in verse 2. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. This is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of an encounter he had with the Most High God, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So this God has revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar in such a specific and powerful way that the king is sending a letter to the entire nation, the entire empire, the entire world to tell people what God has done for him. 
And at the beginning, he gives us the, the, the king's dream. We find uh, the first kind of movement in the story. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 4 that he was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. He was enjoying a season of comfort and luxury and peace, which happens from time to time. Not all the time for King Nebuchadnezzar, not all the time for the kings and leaders of nations, but there are seasons along the way that get a little more comfortable and um, peaceful than others. But all of that comes to a screeching halt, and it was a dream that led to that screeching halt. It startled him. He uses the word alarmed, or, or some of your versions might say terrified, to describe his reaction to this dream. You ever have one of those? Where you wake up just so freaked out that you're not, you're not sure if it was real or not. Amanda dreams that I die about once every three days. And she, I don't know if it's like some subconscious desire of hers or what, but she wakes up almost like twice a week. I dream that you died again. I'm like, oh, how did it happen this time? Like, I, I, wish, I wish that it were some, something very noble. Like I threw myself in front of a terrorist to shield her and the children from bullets. But it's always something like I choked on French onion soup or something, right? <laughs> I don't know about, and, and then she, and she's terrified, of, of course, and then she realizes I'm still there, so that's good. But maybe, maybe you've been there where you've had a dream that's just, it, it just alarms you and it startles you, and you wake up and you wonder, was that real, or did I imagine that? And, and then o- over the course of a little bit of time, you realize, okay, I, I imagined that. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't real life, and you're kind of at peace, and you can go back to sleep. This dream startled him to the point where he wasn't able to find rest. He was terrified by the dream, which isn't new. We've been here before, right? A couple chapters ago, King Nebuchadnezzar had a puzzling dream, and he was confused as to the meaning of the dream. And remember, he, he summoned before, he summoned the advisors, the Chaldeans, the magicians, the enchanters, and he threatened to kill them all if they couldn't tell him the dream, right? So he's, he's a, maybe he's a little older and wiser. He calls them again. He summons the advisors once again to get to the bottom of this mysterious dream. And this time he actually tells them the dream, it says in verse 7. Maybe he's learned his lesson. Maybe he, he's learned that it's not wise to, to tell them to jump through all those hoops. So he, 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 he comes, he says, I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. It's possible that after hearing the dream, they realized that it contained something a, a little uh, uh, painful for Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe they realized after hearing the dream that it was disastrous for the king and they were afraid to tell him. Maybe they just didn't know. I like to think of it as they just didn't know because God is the one who reveals the dreams and God did not give them that gift, but he has given Daniel a special aptitude to reveal mysteries, to speak on his behalf to communicate these things. He's chosen Daniel for this specific role in Daniel chapter one. The king has a dream, and once again, they couldn't figure it out. So the dream gets revealed because Daniel shows up. Daniel arrives. We don't give, we're not given much of an explanation about why he was delayed, but the point is he was delayed. He wasn't there at the beginning, and he arrives. He arrives to do what the others could not do yet again. The king addresses Daniel by his, his new name, the Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which is named after the name of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. But he makes a very important distinction about this man, 
who's now been serving with him for decades. The distinction that he makes about Daniel when he speaks of him is that the spirit of the holy gods was in him. He calls Daniel, who he actually calls Belteshazzar, named after my gods, but in him was the spirit of the holy gods. There is something unique about this Hebrew man who's likely 50 years old at this point. And what made him unique was that his God spoke to him in special ways. That his God interacted with him and revealed himself to him and revealed mysteries to him in ways that nobody else got to experience. It was that gift that distinguished him from peers and colleagues. In verse 9, we're told that he is still the chief of the magicians or the king's counselors after all these years still serving faithfully. And I thought that was kind of interesting, just given, given the, uh, the, the propensity for King Nebuchadnezzar to threaten to kill everybody who disagrees with him all the time. I found it odd that this guy sustained for 30 years in his service. Because you have one bad day and you tears your limbs out of your body, you know, knocks your house down. This, he's not the most reasonable guy, but, but here his Daniel has, has served him now for all these years. And now we get to hear about the dream. And we're told exactly what he saw. And he tells us that he saw a great tree, that it grew and reached all the way to the heavens. And so significant was this tree that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream that you could see it from anywhere on the earth. And it was loaded with fruit, bent down with fruit. And it produced shade for all the beasts of the field. And the birds found a home in its branches. It was a beautiful, beautiful sight. But then something happened, or, or more appropriately, someone appeared. A, a messenger from heaven comes down. And the words in Aramaic used here describe shock and surprise. It startled Nebuchadnezzar to see this arrival of the messenger. And the messenger speaks and he decrees that, that the great tree is to be chopped down, stripped of its branches, its leaves, its fruit and all. And at that point, obviously, the animals and birds would no longer find shelter there. They would have to find that somewhere else, so they would scatter. In a, a, weird, a weird turn of events, the messenger says, as you chop it down, make sure, though, that you leave the roots intact. They're to be bound with iron and bronze, a band shackled and preserved there in the grass of the field, covered with dew, eating among the beasts and the animals, grazing. His mind, obviously, we're no longer talking about a tree, but we switch in the, in the dream here. His mind was going to be taken from him, and he was instead to have the mind of a beast given to him for seven periods of time, which we'll find out later was seven years. And verse 17 is the key to understanding this whole passage. I would argue that it's the key to understanding this entire chapter right here, verse 17. In the dream, here's what the messenger says. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Right there is the centerpiece of this chapter. That is the verse that unlocks the meaning of the entire dream and its interpretation. That the most high God rules over the kingdoms of earth. And it is by his decree and his wisdom and his providence that he establishes leaders 
And the leaders he chooses might not be the ones that you expect. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision of the most holy ones, that we would know that God reigns, that he is in control. These watchers are angelic messengers. Essentially, what, what the, the point is that heaven has watched you, Nebuchadnezzar. Your activity, your heart, your intentions, your administration has been observed by the messengers of heaven and you have been found lacking and guilty before the Holy One. Your rebellion, your ungodliness is a stain against your record. He's being warned in this dream. So Nebuchadnezzar says to him, all right, so that's it. So that's what I saw. He says to Daniel, so what does that mean? You have the spirit of the holy gods. Do your thing. Work your voodoo. Work your, tell me what this means. Can you imagine being in Daniel's place? Have you ever had to bear bad news and deliver bad news that you just didn't want to share? Have you ever had to be that person? Here's Daniel standing before the king. And although he has a decent reputation with the king, he's not, he's not unaware that the king flies off the handle and then kills people from time to time. Daniel instantly knows what the dream's about because God gives him that ability. God reveals to Daniel what the dream's about and now he's stuck. Here he is ready to give the interpretation in verse 19 through 27. Certainly he'll give the interpretation because God gave it to him. Not because there's anything special about Daniel because there's something very special about Daniel's God who empowers that ability to see. But he hesitates. <laughs> He's dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The words used in Aramaic can mean appalled or astounded. He was overcome by the horror that this message, that he understood the dream to convey. And the king says, well, don't let the dream alarm you. Tell me. It's easy for him to say. He's, he's not a, you're, king, you're not telling a madman that he's about to be humiliated. Daniel begins by saying that, that he wishes the dream were meant for King Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. Who knows, maybe they become friendly over these 30-some years. Maybe he's just nervous that the king will have him torn limb from limb. Or maybe he's envisioning a period of chaos and anarchy that would come if the king were removed from power. At any rate, he's alarmed. He says, King, you're the tree. Here's the interpretation of the big dream. King, you are the tree. Kind of like that head of gold that we saw in the previous dream. King, it's you. You are the tree and the extension. The kingdom is an extension of your rule and reign. The kingdom of Babylon is the tree. You are the tree as the head of that kingdom. And the kingdom of Babylon is growing powerful and expansive. Many people have found prosperity and security under the reign of Babylon. And this must have made Nebuchadnezzar puff up with pride, right? Yeah, that's right, I am the, I am the tree. Of course I am. Look at how great, you can see me throughout the whole earth. That's right. I, we are pretty special. In fact, I'm pretty special. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens. Your dominion to the ends of the earth, Daniel says. In Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, there was no end to the glorious reign that he was presiding over. The presence of a watcher, again, the angelic messenger, this pronouncement, though, king, is a divine judgment. And now Daniel will begin to explain what this godly sentence means for the tree, because judgment is coming. 
He says, it's you, King. You're the tree. That means you're the one who will be driven from among men due to your animalistic behavior. You're no longer going to live in the palace. You're going to make your dwelling among the wild animals, the animals of the field. The great and mighty king will be reduced to a common farm animal. You're going to eat grass like an ox. You'll be covered with the dew of the heaven. You'll sleep outside. And seven periods, which are seven years, will elapse. The purpose of all of it. Again, verse 25. There's a reason for this humiliation. God is not in heaven dreaming up new ways to inflict pain and difficulty, but, verse 25, that you shall be driven from among men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, you shall be uh, made to eat grass like an ox, and shall be wet with the dew of heaven, seven periods will pass. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Sounds very familiar to another verse we just read in verse 17. That's the key here. You're going to be inflicted with all of this difficulty until you come to the place where you realize that it is the Most High who rules over the heavens. And he gives the kingdoms of men to whoever he will. And while this news must have been very difficult to hear, Daniel did offer a glimmer of hope in verse 26. The fact that the stump and the roots were left intact indicates that this malady would not be forever. His sanity and his kingdom would be returned to him when he repented. So king, follow this advice. Repent of your sin. Do what is right. And do you know what he told him to do in order to do what was right? Be kind to the oppressed. Stop exploiting people. Treat them with dignity. Treat them like human beings created in the image of God. Stop oppressing people. Be kind to them. So somehow, for King Nebuchadnezzar, obedience to God, repentance, and faith in, in God would look like liberating the oppressed. In fact, over and over again, throughout, this isn't even in my notes, but over and over again throughout the Old Testament, some of God's harshest criticisms against the Jewish people come because they don't treat well the foreigner, the stranger, and the oppressed. In fact, he says, you want to know, you want to know what please God? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. That's what pleases him. He's shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Constantly, the oppression of the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner and the stranger is what led, led the Israelites into hot water with God and now is also leading King Nebuchadnezzar into a place of judgment. He says, that, that would be a demonstration, king, that you were repentant that you were looking to God in faith, that you would care for the oppressed. Do that. Okay? So we get to the end of that. And if he would do that, if he would break off those sins, if he would practice righteousness, and he would show mercy to the oppressed, then there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. If you would do that, maybe God will still restore and expand your reign. All right. And that's it. 
That's all, that's all we get from that point. We don't get his reaction. We don't understand, is he, is he saddened by this? Does he take steps to, towards repentance and faith? Like, how does he respond? All we're told, again, it's, it's selective in its history. All we're told is 12 months later, a whole year later, it all got fulfilled. It took a year to catch up with him, but it found him. I wonder if there were some days during that gap where Nebuchadnezzar thought that the interpretation was wrong. I wonder if there were days during that gap where he thought that maybe he got away with one. Or that, that maybe repentance wasn't necessary because I'm a whole year later and I'm still doing just fine. Or as though maybe God is slack in fulfilling his promises. And we'll remember the words of Peter, won't we? God is not slack in fulfilling his promises. He's long-suffering and he's patient so that many would come to repentance. Why, why the gap of a year to give Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity for repentance? Why, why the gap in the pronouncement of judgment and condemnation and the actual judgment of God? Why the gap where we live condemned by the law, condemned under the law before a holy and righteous God, and yet we don't bear in our bodies every day the wrath and indignation and condemnation of God? What is it? Is God slack in fulfilling his promises? Is he a pushover? Absolutely not. Hell and condemnation and judgment come to those who are unrighteous, who have not received the gift of God's grace through faith. So why the gap? Because of his long suffering and his patience and his desire. It is his will that none would perish, but that we would repent and turn to him in faith. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He gives, he gives Nebuchadnezzar ample opportunity. He's been revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar for 30 years. There's a message there for those of us who are praying for our loved ones who still yet today will not bow their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. He's been revealing himself to him for 30 years. And it all happens. There he was, walking on the rooftop, looking out over the city. And as he saw the royal city that he had built, a sense of pride welled up with him. Not gratitude, not gratitude to the Lord for the wonderful life he lives, but pride in his heart. And he began to reflect on his own importance on his own glory, on his own ability to build this kingdom. And he actually spoke it out loud. Is this not, verse 30, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And instantly, while the words were on his lips, he heard a voice from heaven. God has had enough of his pride and his arrogance and his refusal to bow the knee. The kingdom has been taken from you. You'll now be driven from among men. You'll dwell with the beasts of the fields. You'll eat, you'll eat grass like an ox for seven years until you come to know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. The word Verse 33, the decree, the dream from a year earlier was immediately fulfilled against him. And he started to act like an animal. His hair grew long and it became matted and it resembled the feathers of a bird like an eagle. His fingernails, untrimmed, began to look like claws. 
And for seven years he was afflicted. Again, we read over these, we read over these statements of time like, like it's nothing, like it's just a couple days. It was seven years. For seven years, this guy was off the throne and in the fields. And we're not told much about what was happening there. But it kind of makes you wonder though. In a world where national political stability was so rare, how hard his administration must have worked to keep the kingdom safe and secure while their king was crawling around eating grass in the fields. Can you imagine what would happen today if a leader went unseen for that length of time? I mean, Hillary Clinton passes out in New York City. People fly, fly into all kinds of theories about her being a body double. You remember that? Some of you did that just like two years ago. She passes out in New York City and all of you thought she was dead. She was going to be dead by the election, but there was like some kind of Manchurian candidate that was going to come and it was a lookalike. It was a Hillary Clinton doppelganger controlled by all the evil forces of the Democratic Party. And we, we come into all these theories because we didn't see her for like 10 minutes after she passed out and threw up. Can you imagine if for seven years the president was gone? If for seven years, a prime minister just didn't show up anywhere, the amount, the kind of chaos that would ensue in that, the power struggles behind the scenes, he, it's amazing that God, God intervened in a pagan empire and held it together to fulfill his promise. It's amazing that it stayed together that long. Just in this book, in Next week, we're going to read about a guy who's, who got all proud and, and arrogant and the kingdom was taken from him that very night. Stability is not something that is, is uh, a commonplace in the ancient world. And yet God preserved it to fulfill his promises. Seven years he was afflicted. Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven at the end of seven years in verse 34. And he doesn't just like glaze at that gaze at them in, in, in a passing way he looks to heaven fixed his, like like in the book of acts he fixes his eyes to the king of heaven and then in that recognition of the power and the majesty of god most high then his reason returns to him seven years later he finally understands the glory of god as the ruler and the sovereign king over all the kingdoms of the world. It took him seven years. This is, according to one commentator, this was an act of submission and surrender, an acknowledgement of his need for the Most High. And see how his perspective changes. When he considers God and all of his power and majesty, the peoples of earth, even kings of, of the nations, in verse 35, they're regarded as nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing when compared to the glory and the majesty of the Most High God. Even, even arrogant and proud and rebellious kings are accounted as nothing before the Most High God. God is in control. God will do what he chooses to do and no one can stay his hand. You cannot stop him from doing what he will do. And as the people of God, we don't want to stop him. 
Sometimes I look at the way we handle ourselves in, in the current political climate, climate and I, I get the sense that we're afraid, so we're trying to do what we can to hold back God's hand. Like, like if we do enough good things, then God will wait a little bit longer. And bottom line, God is going to do what he's going to do when he decreed that it would happen, and we don't want to stop him. The best thing for us would be for him to execute his plan in perfection because he's good and righteous and just and all that he does will be good for us as well. You can't stay his hand. You can't change his mind and you can't say to him, what have you done? Okay, that's a big one there. You don't have the right to judge his actions. He's in control by his own decree. He determines what is just and right. He is the definition of justice and righteousness. You don't have the freedom. Or, or maybe we could go to Paul's language. As the piece of, of art, the, the pottery that has been created, you don't have the right to say to the potter, why'd you do it that way? You could have done it better. You should have done something different. Why is my life the way it is? Why did you make it this way? What, what have you done? You, we don't have the right to judge him or to, uh, to evaluate him and produce some kind of condemnation by his own, just by his, the eminence of his character and nature, he's perfect in all that he does. Okay, so his, his perspective changed. He give, he's given his position of leadership back, and I don't know how that goes, but I imagine there's some sort of like vetting process. Last week, this dude was like crawling around the fields naked, Eat, like sleeping like an ox with matted hair and, and claws. Today he's sitting on the throne. So there's probably some sort of like psychological evaluation or physical, like he has to have some process of going back into his position, but he comes and he sits on the throne again and he's given his leadership back. And the accompanying splendor of ruling a superpower is restored to him again. And no one stands over him as judge. And now he says, I praise and extol the king of heaven. His works are right. His ways are just. He brings humility to the proud. Okay, think about that. The guy who just said that spent seven years like an animal eating grass in the field because God afflicted him with that, that illness. And that guy says, his works are right. His ways are just. He humbles the proud. One commentator said it this way, chapter four is a story about two sovereignties, the might of the greatest of human kings, Nebuchadnezzar, versus the power of the most high God. And of course, the king of Babylon was no match for the king of the universe. And throughout the book, the absolute authority of Israel's God is set forth. And such is the teaching of scripture, a teaching that should comfort every believer who casts a thoughtful glance upon a world in chaos and is tempted to fear. In these times, the redeemed of God must look beyond the earthly scene to heaven and remember that God still reigns and someday he will come and rule directly over the kingdoms of the earth. Okay, so what? What is all that about? I told our, I told our team this morning at our pre-service prayer meeting, like this is one of the weirdest chapters I've taught in a long time. What does all of that mean for us? And there's two ways I want to approach it today. 
okay? The first is the big picture, and then we're going to go micro into some personal applications, right? On the big picture, as, as we scan this, this chapter, what is it saying to us about God? Because it reveals so much about him. It reveals to us a God who reveals deep mysteries, that he is wiser than all the gods of the Babylonians, that he possesses in and of himself wisdom. And that is still true today. He is a God who reveals deep mysteries to those who seek him. He is a God who pursues the rebel and the enemy with relentless grace. He had every right to strike Nebuchadnezzar dead many times before now. Like when he first besieged Jerusalem. He could have struck him right then. When he began to deport the best and the brightest, he could have struck him then. When he threatened to kill off his advisors, he could have struck him then. When he wrongly threw, or rightly, but wrongly made the decree that no one could worship their God except for him and threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, he could have struck him then. And yet God consistently is pursuing him with grace. Where is the message of the gospel in Daniel? It's in the pursuit of God for Nebuchadnezzar that he consistently comes to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar. And he's revealing himself to us today. And you might be here, and you might not be a follower of Jesus. You might be a friend of a friend or a family member who just showed up today, and you're not sure where all this goes. But I would argue that based on the testimony of the scriptures, that God himself has been revealing himself to you over and over again, showing, showing you his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, showing you his control over the events of your life, he desires you to repent. He, he calls to you to come to him, to humble yourself before him and receive his grace. The God of Daniel chapter four is a God who pursues the enemy, not just the righteous and the moral. See, that's the best part about the gospel. God doesn't pursue the righteous and the moral. He pursues the downcast, the poor, the powerless, the broken, the hurting, the unrighteous, the immoral. He pursues them with his grace. Also, we see in Daniel 4 a God who keeps his word, that he's not slack in keeping his promises, but he is patient, he's long-suffering, he's good, he's kind, so that many would come to repentance. We see a God who restores and delivers by his grace through faith when Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven, and God still restores in the same way today by no merit of our own, by his free gift of grace, and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be restored to him. Our sin can be forgiven. We can be welcomed into the family of God, not by our works of righteousness, but by grace and through faith. And we see a God who is purposeful in his judgment and punishment. A God who, like a good father, uses corrective discipline not to destroy the subject, but to reveal himself to the subject. He did not bring judgment to Nebuchadnezzar to destroy him, but to reveal himself to him. He's purposeful in his correction. Okay, so what about me? I'm so glad you asked that question. What does that have to do with me? Here, here, real simple. Humble yourself before the Lord. 
God is sovereign and powerful. And he's not just sovereign and powerful in like a theoretical sense somewhere out there. He's sovereign and powerful over the events of your life today, right now, right here. Humble yourself before him. Guard the pride and the rebellion of your own heart. Humble yourself before God. Another thing for us personally, that God is holy and he's not going to allow his holy name to be dishonored. Not going to allow his holy name to be disregarded. We, we bear the name of the Lord. We ought not bear it in vain. The name of Christ is stamped upon us. Our name graven on his hands. Right? We ought not bear that name in vain. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day we will all see him for who he really is. And in that day, some will bow in fear and trembling as they are forced into submission by his strong arm of righteousness. And some of us will bow weeping with adoration in worshipful, glad submission for the grace that he gave us. How much better would it be to bow the heart and the knee to Jesus today? To submit gladly to his leadership and his authority in our lives today? To not be strong-armed into submission because we will at some point, but to find our hearts overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God and gladly give him our lives. Humble yourself before the Lord. Turn to him for grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and all that it teaches us. Thank you for this book of Daniel and what we're learning through it. Thank you that today we are reminded that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And we look at the world stage and we see kingdom rising against kingdom and nation against nation. We see war and rumors of war. We see chaos on the home front, chaos abroad. And we wonder sometimes looking at it, where is the thread of order and stability and decency among these competing nations? Remind us, God, that the Ancient of Days has not moved off of his throne. Remind us today, like you did to Nebuchadnezzar, like you did to Daniel, that you still reign, that you rule over the affairs of the kingdoms of men, that it is your decree that one rises and one falls, that you appoint over the nations whom you will, and you appoint the lowliest of men to lead nations. God, I pray that you would give us a divine, a godly sense of humility before your goodness and grace. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts to humble ourselves before you. And Lord, I pray that as we humble ourselves before you, that we would be lifted up like you promised. Lifted up by grace and love, lifted up through faith, seated at the table, given a position in your family. I pray that today, God, in your mercy and grace, you would chase down the proud and the arrogant, the rebellious. Reveal yourself to us. Lead us to humility and faith. Remind us yet again that you reign over all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray.